We're going to look to Second Chronicles uh, 7.14 in a moment, and we'll stand and read, but I just have an object lesson. This is a 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary, a Christian, uh, and this is just full of Scripture. You look up any of your Bible words, he'll have Scripture on it, because he's a Christian. And it's one of our object lessons today, so it'll be up here if you want to look at it afterwards. It's just a dictionary, but just to see the scripture in it, it'll be up here for you. And I have so many good things in my library I could have brought today, but um, I don't think you want me to bring my whole library. It would take quite a while, but uh, uh, that's, that's one of the great, great object lessons. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to read a portion of verse 11 and then verse 14. And stand when you find 2 Chronicles chapter 7. After the five Pentateuch books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, then 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's in the Old Testament. I love <clears throat> Proverbs 14, 34, which says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is reproach to any people. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11, the first half of the verse says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And that would be the king's palace. Verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God bless us today. This day we set aside to thank you for our country, for our heritage, and Lord, we salute the flag, but most of all, we salute you for sending Jesus to be our freedom and our salvation from sin. Bless, hide me behind the cross, and help me to say exactly what you'd have me to say. Be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. I was pleasantly surprised, you may be seated, when I... Uh, came in and saw all these folks here. I thought, 4th of July, we're not going to have 40, 50 people. Sunday school, it was a surprise. Frank didn't show up, but Frank's sick. And I found out this morning, and it was good to see everyone in Sunday school as well. But it's certainly good on the 4th of July for all you to come out and remember our heritage and so forth today. And I'll be sharing much about our heritage in a few moments. But we find this passage... Verse 14 has been used by preachers for hundreds of years, I'm sure, and especially on uh, the week of 4th of July. Uh, during that week, they would use this all the time. But we want to explain the entire context so you understand the passage in its entirety. We're going to look at the first six verses, verse 11 through 16 this morning, and do a little exposition of this passage. Solomon had just finished the temple. And uh, he's, he's now writing this about potential problems in the future. It's about upcoming sin. At this time, God was not angry. Uh, but he's warning that he may become angry if there's sin. Uh, he was warning Solomon of upcoming problems and the need and the method of revival when those problems arrived. The context continues down through verse 22. We're going to look at the first, uh, just down through verse 16. Now, if you notice in verse 3, back up to verse 3. The Bible tells us in verse 3 that the temple was a place of praise and worship. 
talks about praise and worship in verse 3. Then down in verse 9, it talks about a place to assemble. The word assemble there. And of course, we don't forsake the assembling today. You put your priorities today in the right place. This is the Lord's day. So the Lord is still first. Amen. And our country has to take second place today. But we find here the assembly. Then also, verse 11, a place to meet the Lord. You can read these later. A place to meet the Lord. Verse 12, a place of sacrifice. And then in verse 15, a place of prayer. Now we find today the common denominators between the temple and the church. Uh, of course, the church is a place of praise and worship, a place to assemble, a place to meet the Lord. And you say, Pastor, a place to sacrifice? Is it really? Yes, it is. Because Romans 12, verse 1 says, But I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice where we don't offer dead animals anymore. We are offering ourselves. And then, of course, verse 15, a place of prayer. Now Solomon had just finished praying in the previous chapter. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. In verse 13, he prayed to the God of heaven. In verse 14, verse 14, he said to the God of heaven in verse 18. And then eight more times in chapter 6, he says, let me hear from heaven. Let me hear from heaven. So God's now going to answer that prayer. And you look at verse 12, and the Bible says, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. Wow. Here's an appearance of the Lord. We call this a theopony, God appearing. But here is specifically a Christophany because the four capital letters of the word Lord indicate that this is Yahweh. Not just master, which should be small letters, but all four are capitalized. So what does that teach us? This is Yahweh. Uh, the I am of the Old Testament, and we know who that would become Jesus. And so here the Lord appears. Can you imagine that? You pray and you pray and pray and all of a sudden this figure of a man is there at night and you're like, wow, wow, what is going on here? And I, I suppose we could have angelic appearances today, but this was the Lord. And he speaks to Solomon and he says in verse 13, if, in other words, if their sin, I will do several things in the nation of Israel. And the first one he would do, it, he'd cause a drought. Look at verse 13. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. Or if I command locusts to devour the land. So a drought, or devouring locusts, or disease. Or I send pestilence among, amongst my people. That's the word disease. You say, how do you know that? Well, the same Hebrew word. Look at Psalm 41.8 if you want to. Psalm 41.8, we'll find that this Hebrew word is translated right here. I like to do this one time every time I speak. So you understand a Hebrew word can be translated in your Bible 10, 12 ways, same with Greek. In 41.8, it says here, an evil disease, say they cleaveth fast unto him. It's also translated in Exodus, moraine. It was that cattle disease. Did you know that a pestilence, is disease, do you know that your body is full of pestilence? You ever want to do an experience, get a little microscope and scrape some of your skin off, maybe scratch your head and look at it under a microscope, you'll go, ooh, all those things that are in your sheets. Or spit on the little microscope and look at it. Thank God we have some good bacteria, but let me tell you something. Your body, when you're sick, is full of nasties. 
And so that's why the word pestilence can be translated disease. So he says, if, if you don't live right, if Israel doesn't do the right thing, I'm going to send a drought, devouring insects, and I'm going to send disease. Sort of a threat, but not really. It's a promise. God doesn't threaten us. He keeps his word. You know, we threaten sometimes. We don't mean it. God means everything he says. And if they would fall into sin, these things would happen. It's not a threat. It's a promise. Then in verse 14, we get to this great verse. <clears throat> now, we have to understand that Israel and the church are different entities. They're different. Israel was a nation. They were chosen as a nation. They were God's people, weren't they? And then when they sinned, God had it with them. He let the enemy come in, take over, and the Jews were spread all over the world to 100 plus nations. Because God was fed up with them. In fact, Jeremiah says he divorced his bride, Israel. Think of that. So he's done with Israel. And then we're also chosen, but we're chosen individually. Now, we believe whosoever will, so don't panic this morning. But the Bible does say God chooses us before the foundation of the world. But we also know whosoever will, and they work hand in hand, those two doctrines. In other words, anyone who wants to be saved can repent and call on the Lord and be saved. Amen? I'm so thankful that whosoever will included me. And so here Israel, God's people, if, if, big, big word. You say it's only two letters. Yes, but this is a big word. It's like the word but, you know, for the wages of sin is death, but thank God for that little word but. The gift of God is eternal life. If you're not a believer, the gift of God is eternal life, but the wages of your sin is eternal separation from God. So he says, if, if, and then he says, my people, a reference to Israel, Israel prior to the divided kingdom. Solomon's still the king. Unfortunately, in 930, Solomon would die, and we know that his son Rehoboam was given the kingdom, but Jeroboam, his, his, uh, we'd call him, I've, I've got to read, I've got to look at my notes because I can't remember everything I want to say, but the, for his former chief of staff, we'll call him, Jeroboam and Rehoboam didn't get along. And so his kingdom would be naturally given to his son Rehoboam, but Jeroboam would revolt. He would take 10 tribes, the northern kingdom, and revolt. And he was the first, first king of, of 19 evil kings, the, the, northern, uh, the northern kingdom, where the capital of Samaria would have 19 kings, all evil. And 200 plus years later, in 722, the northern kingdom would be defeated by the Assyrians. Rehoboam, his son, also ungodly. Jeroboam had an Egyptian wife. That's not a bad thing, but she wasn't a believer. And Rehoboam would worship idols, and both of them would worship idols. Now you have a divided kingdom. And Jeroboam was one of 20 kings in the northern kingdom. Only eight of those were good. And so you have this division, and you have two horrible kingdoms. And guess what? They're not God's people. They've worshipped idols and loved other gods and God's fed up with them and they've been scattered and, and just defeated. And of course they had drought and they had locust and they had disease and, and we know all about that as we read the history of Israel and read our Bible. And so God did exactly what he said he would. But how do we carry this passage across time and culture and make an application 
for today. Well, who are God's people today? We are. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. Did you know when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God? Now, the mistake we make with this passage is we apply a passage, this passage to America. And that's a mistake. Don't panic. This passage applied to Israel and now it applies to believers. My people are God's people. Do you know that most of Americans are children of the devil? You say, Pastor, what a mean thing to say. I'm quoting God's word. Ye are of your father the devil, he told the Jews who weren't believers. So this passage applies to us. Did you know judgment begins with the house of God? Do you know as long as we are in America and we are fulfilling the, fulfilling the Great Commission, America's blessed by having us. Now they don't like us and they'd like to get rid of us and one day we will be gone at the rapture. And then America without us is going to go through the tribulation period. So the promise is if God's people who are called by His name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I'll heal their land. The blessing for America is the church. It's the church. We're the biggest blessing America has. They don't realize it. Because all of us are little temples walking around possessed by the Holy Spirit. And that's the great blessing for our country. Look at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Acts, the New Testament, fifth book. Chapter 11, verse 26. The last part, the last sentence. If my people, which are called by my name, look at Acts 11, 26, the last line. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. We're Christians. Now I tell people, if you don't live like one, don't mention that you're one. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of embarrassing when people will approach you, and it hasn't happened to me about any of you, so relax, but we'll say, oh, so-and-so says he's a Christian. I work with him. He's the laziest guy at work. Oh, I hate to hear that. Or she's the meanest neighbor. She fights with everyone on the street to get practiced for when her husband comes home. <laughs> I've dealt with him in business and he's crooked. You know, all of us have heard that, haven't we, about Christian people. Do you know what kind of business person you are? What kind of person you are when it comes to paying your bills and paying what you owe and being honest matters. It matters because you're called a Christian, a follower of the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. That's not Jesus' last name. It's his title. And you're one of his. So he says, of my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Oh, I like that. Oh, do we need to humble ourselves? When we realize what we are, it's like the guy that said to his wife, honey, I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm so proud. I struggle with it because I'm so good looking. I just can't hardly deal with my, my pride. And she was very clever. She just simply handed him a mirror. 
You know, a mirror reveals a lot of things, doesn't it? You know, this reveals a lot of things. This is called a glass in James 1. This is a mirror. When I look in here, I have to humble myself because I see myself. Oh, I see myself. You know, today I thought, well, I could talk about gays and talk about our crooked government, and they are crooked, and I could talk about this person and that leader and all that, but I could go to Romans 1 where it talks about the gays and all those other things, but it also talks about those people who struggle with the flesh and the anger and the impatience and all those other things. And we have to see ourselves. So often we want to look in the Bible like this. Oh, there's Brother Goodner there. I see him right in that verse. And there's Ed. It's me, oh Lord. How many times have I said that? I see myself. And that's a dose of humility. Bam, just like that because I realize I'm far short from what I ought to be. So humbling themselves, they bowed when they worshiped God, according to verse 3, and pray. And then verse, this verse back in our text, verse 14 says, and seek my face. And that is more than prayer. Prayer is already mentioned there. This is the idea of living right because you're in the presence of God. When you seek God's face, it means you're living right because you're in his presence. You're in his face. Years ago, my boys were all basketball players, and they got several state championship rings, and they would play beat McCauley, and I watched them beat Brainerd, and I was the proud dad, and I'd get up there and holler, and then sometimes I'd say, come on, ref, what kind of call is that? And then I'd go and preach, and how to be spirit-filled, oh, be filled with the spirit, controlled by the spirit, and then the Lord would say, oh, brother, he doesn't speak it in an audible voice, but he's, he's telling me, you know, you, you need a look in the book for a walk in the world. And it would convict me. And I realized I need to seek his face. I need to realize that when I'm in my car, God is with me. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. I don't need to get a pat on the back for the good. He sees it, but he also sees the evil. He also sees the evil. He knows all about me. And so we have to humble ourselves, seek his face. And then this word that we realize is so important, we have to repent. It says here, and turn, that's the word, from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. Then, he says, then, then will I hear from heaven. Look at Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18. And you want to mark this in your Bible. It's a good verse on prayer. I've quoted it here before, but I want you to mark it today. Psalm 66, 18. And this is to the believer. This is the psalmist. Uh, you know, the chief musician. Uh, uh, you know, a song, a psalm for the chief from David. He says here, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not what? Hear me, hear me. That's a verse for us from the psalmist. And this is in song. Remember, all psalms are songs. So he's singing this. That's for the musician to sing and to play. Look at Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. 
Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Love this. And this is a passage for the unbeliever. And this is a passage for Israel. For Israel. He's talking to the children of Israel. Isaiah is a great portion of scripture. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Years ago, I had a friend, Alex Cutchins. Alexander Cutchins. And he was my next door neighbor. We played a lot of chess together. When I first met him, I helped beat him up. <laughs> and then I, you know, it was a short walk home. Then I had to face his dad and his mom over in the yard. And I'd think, oh boy, I had to go over. I was, I was in sixth grade. He said, Alex, I'm so sorry. And we became friends. And years later, I mean, I was there through junior college. So we got a lot of time to build a friendship. And we became buddies and he got over it. But I tried to witness to Alex when I was getting right with the Lord and try to share the gospel with him. And he said, I will never believe in God. And I said, why? He said, because when my grandfather was dying, I prayed. He was suffering terrible from cancer, suffering, suffering. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God never touched him. And I thought, how do I answer that? In these verses are perfect. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, and he will not hear. Do you know God does not hear the prayer of sinners? He's sovereign, and he'll manipulate sinners like he did Nebuchadnezzar. He controls even the king's heart. Every decision that's made in the world, God allows for and controls the situation. You say, why do we make decisions we make in our country? Well, we have to get ready for the man of sin. The Bible says men will get worse and worse. Our country's getting prepared. All the talk of life on other planets, I've said this before as well. It's just preparation. So when we're gone, they have someone to blame. Then will I hear from heaven, back to our text. Heaven is the abode of God. And forgive their sin and heal their land. Do you want what's right for America? Then you get on your knees and begin to pray for America. And you witness to your friends and your neighbors and your associates and your, we call it frangelism, friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. Evangelize those people in your world. That's the best thing for America. We, if we fulfill the Great Commission and more and more Americans got saved, that would change elections, it would change policy, but we're fouling in the Great Commission and we have to look in the mirror when it comes to blame for our country. I could stand up today and say a lot about things that are going on in our country. And I don't have much good to say right now. I mean, we're pushing all these immoral agendas but my Bible says, don't speak evil of dignitaries, but it says, honor the king and pray for all men. It's hard for me to get on my knees and say, God, please knock some sense into this guy. That's what I want to say to the Lord. But the Lord's in control. I have to evangelize the people in my realm. And that's the best thing I can do for our country is evangelize and pray. When a policeman pulls me over, 
I have to respect him as an authority. And if his life is immoral, I don't say to him, I'm not paying attention to your authority because you're shacking up with a woman and you're a drunk on the weekends. No, I don't do that. We'd have a lot to say to a lot of people, wouldn't we? <laughs> Could you imagine that? No. I respect his position and pray for him. I vote, that's my right. But our country needs us to be difference makers. Needs us to be witnesses. Needs for us to reach our neighbor. The word, he says, and I'll forgive. That word forgive is translated pardon in Exodus 34, 9. You know what God's done with us? He's pardoned us from a death sentence. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. I mean, I was about to drown spiritually, but God saved me. And he pardoned me from eternal death and eternal separation. So the country is not what needs to repent. We don't really expect. I'd love to see it happen. I'd love to see for President Biden to call Franklin Graham to the White House. I remember when George Bush came out and said, I was lost, I was an alcoholic, and Billy Graham came and told me about Jesus. I accepted him and quit drinking. I said, woo, glory. <laughs> Isn't that a great testimony? I heard Ronald Reagan say he knew Jesus as his personal savior. And I'll give you some more information about our past. But I really don't expect for Joe and Kamala to get on national TV and say, we're sinners, we've repented and trusted Christ, and from now on we're going to have Christian policies. I can't expect that. Oh, I hope it happened and God's able. But what I can do is pray for them that God will manipulate them and I can pray and reach my neighbor for Christ and that's one more person that'll be pro-life. One more person that'll vote a conscience rather than a political party. One more person who will pray for our country. That's my calling. My calling is not to argue with the guy. My calling is to evangelize a guy. And let's keep things in perspective because we can make this country better. The hope for America is none other than Jesus Christ. If you're without him, that's the hope for you today. There's hope for Israel. 144,000 Jews one day will be saved. Individually some are saved, but the nation is lost and they're on their way to hell. Many Jews have gone on to eternity without Jesus but I like 2 Samuel because we're told they're an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. They'll one day have the land. They'll have the land from the Mediterranean Sea way over to the Euphrates. That means Iraq and Lebanon and Jordan and, and Saudi Arabia. Years ago in the Camp David Accords, we gave part of the land that was Israel's to Egypt. And I was upset in the whole country. The media said, oh, that was just a great thing. And I thought, that's a terrible thing. They're supposed to have to the river of Egypt, not the Nile, the river of Egypt. And we just gave that land away for peace. One day they'll have it all. And they'll have a king. Oh, not Rehoboam, not Jeroboam, not even David. But he'll sit in David's throne. And he'll be like David was when David was after God's own heart. It'll be God himself in Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of Israel. But judgment begins in the house of God. We think of our country. The home was instituted in Genesis 2. And that, that, that was something we recognize as a nation. The government which we have was based on Genesis 9. 
And the church, of course, we know was envisioned in the congregation in the wilderness, commissioned the upper room and empowered at Pentecost. Let me just read to you a few things which don't surprise you. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen? The kings of the earth set themselves against the root and take counsel against the Lord. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. And by me, princes rule and nobles, uh, even all the judges of the earth. The king's heart is in the Lord's hand. He turns it however he wants to. I paraphrase that. Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given from above, he said to the Pharisees. And he says, for nation and kingdom will not, that don't serve thee will perish. God's going to judge nations. But unfortunately, America's going to be on the losing side. How do you know that, Pastor? I know that because Scripture says that when the nations of the world attack Israel, none will stand with Israel. You know why? We're raptured out. We're gone. There's no voice in D.C. saying, take care of the Jews. Even Richard Nixon, the great airlift that saved the nation, wasn't right with God. It was his mother that said, if you can ever help Israel, help Israel. And all the, all the presidents we've had that didn't know Jesus that helped Israel. Thank God for that. Because God controls their hearts. Let me read you some things that might interest you. Our education was based upon Israel and based upon the Bible. Do you know education in Israel began at the synagogue? And they learned the law. First, they learned the alphabet. They'd have to be tested on that at 12, and they'd be accepted in the community, and they'd begin to learn and learn and learn. And Jesus actually went there to learn, even though he knew everything is God. But in our country, our, our, I have the Webster's Dictionary. That was a, a book in the early education in our country, the New England Primer, full of Scripture, the Blue Book Speller, full of Scripture, the, five, five first, the first several school textbooks, excuse me, were all full of scripture, including that dictionary. And that's how kids learn. Our school was a result of God's influence in our country. Now our schools are a result of the Antichrist influence in our country. Kids are learning everything that's bad as far as philosophy. Even math, they've changed the simple multiplication tables. You know, and the math's not... Terrible today. You can't hardly ruin math. They found a way to try. But they're ruining history. And science is being ruined because it's all about how we came together by some big accident and some random selection thing. And we know the truth. John Quincy Adam read four or five chapters of the Bible every morning. He was opposed, by the way, to slavery. He was vice president of the American Bible Society. He said, my hope of future are founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. George Washington commanded all officers and families to worship at 11 p.m. on Sundays. Thomas Jefferson, I'm a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrine of Jesus. He enacted a Sunday school worship and to become law in five states. Andrew Jackson said, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic stands. John Quincy Adams said the Ten Commandments are the basis for morality. And I already mentioned Noah Webster. The signers of the Constitution, listen, John Witherspoon helped produce the first family Bible, the Collins Bible. Charles Thompson helped translate the first Bible into Greek. 
This is, this is good stuff. James Wilson, human life begins in the womb. William Johnson, these are people who signed the Constitution. William Johnson said, you're redeemed by the Lord. He quoted Ephesians 1.7, you're bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20. James Wilson said our creator reveals himself in the Holy Scriptures. James McHenry said the Holy Scriptures secure our society and order peace and brings justice to our courts. Those are some of our founding fathers. Now, they weren't all believers. Some of them were ungodly heathens. But there were some great men. And they're the reason our country succeeded. And the reason our country continues to succeed is because of God-fearing people in our churches, in our schools, in our homes, and even the few that are in Washington, D.C. Education, as I said, started in the synagogue. One great scholar said most of these changes, when they took prayer out in the 60s and Bible reading out, said most of these changes weren't noticed. They're kind of like termites. You don't see them until the foundation is weakened. And that's what's happened to America. But I'm here to say to you in closing that the answer for America is Jesus Christ. The only hope is Jesus Christ. An election isn't going to bring hope. It, it'll bring change, but it won't bring hope because Jesus Christ is the only answer. If I had my way, I'd just put Franklin Graham or someone in his president. That's not how it works. You know that. The Bible says the prince and power of the air, the God of this world is ruling now. And we see all these things happening, but we know the hope is in Jesus Christ. And let's make that message plain to our friends, our relatives, our associates, and our neighbors. Let's pray. God, thank you. For this day, we thank you, God, for our country. That those freedoms that we have to worship have kept this country worshiping and the rights we have to pray and worship and to preach however we want to preach have blessed this country. And Lord, the, the country may hate us and the world may hate us, but we know we're your children. And our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is in the next world. And we thank you for that. But in the meantime, as we're pilgrims here in America, help us. Help us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we need you so bad. We need you every hour. Our country's in great need right now of revival. But revival begins with believers and judgment begins in the house of God. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.